scripture reading this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Zechariah, the seventh of seven visions found in Zechariah, the sixth chapter, the first eight verses. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariots with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. This is the Word of God. We ask God's help to understand it. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Uh, We pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit so we can understand these words and believe them and be not just hearers but doers as well. Help me to know nothing but Christ your Son and Him crucified. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Somebody once compared search committee members to Cubs fans. I guess once every hundred years. Hopefully, you'll get your championship before that. But Joe Graziola, I think it was, said, Cub fans are 90% scar tissue. But I sympathize with you. I teach preaching, and I listen to about six or eight sermons every week myself. And uh, we just have to believe that it's a means of grace. To help us grow, don't we? But I do pray for you and your search, and um, also pray for you as a church that God would continue to provide richly as He has for you, uh, so that um, uh, you uh, you can see God's faithfulness to you, uh, whether there is a pastor here or not. It's a delight to be with you again, and as we look together at the seventh of seven visions in the book of Zechariah, and we will um, do one more. Uh, in this series, which will be verses 9 through um, the end of the chapter uh, to conclude it. I uh, worked for a man one time in a small town I grew up in. He had a construction company, and uh, he didn't always do things the way most people did. He was a private pilot, too, but he never bothered to get his instrument rating, although he never hesitated to fly in the clouds. He wore, he wore a bolo ties, and whenever he ended up in the clouds, he'd hang that bolo tie from the ceiling, and if the bolo tie was hanging straight, he knew he was flying level. Now, the problem is, you can, in an airplane, you can think you're flying level, and even that bolo tie can hang straight down, uh, but you can be in a turn and uh, dropping in your altitude at the same time, and so... People who actually know what they're doing, 
and this man uh, died a natural death, uh, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but uh, pe- pilots who learn to fly on instruments learn to rely upon what is called an artificial horizon. And that is a little miniature airplane on the instrument panel that tells them whether their wings are level and whether uh, they're uh, climbing or, or, or falling. And uh, they learn to trust it. They learn not to trust their inner ear, <laughs> their sense of balance, or their eyesight, but they learn to trust that artificial horizon that is there before them on the instrument panel. Now, the visions of the kind that we've been looking at in the book of Zechariah are not actually an artificial horizon. Uh, we can say it this way, they are the real horizon for people who are lost in the clouds. Uh, Zechariah's early, his first hearers and listeners were Israelites who had come back from exile, but as I've said before, they lived, between that, they lived in that shadow lands between promise and reality that God had promised to end their captivity and restore himself to their presence. The temple was only partially built. Uh, Enemies surrounded them. They had no wall to protect them. And they had all kinds of reason to wonder uh, where they were in the clouds in that shadow land between promise and reality. And perhaps you too Uh, find yourself in that place, whether you look at your own personal circumstances, uh, wondering where are the promises of God when my life is in the situation it's in. Or perhaps you may even look farther out and you say, what's going on in the world? Where are the promises of God when the world seems to get crazier and uh, more chaotic all the time? And in those kind of circumstances, we precisely need not just an artificial horizon, but a real horizon, a horizon of reality to tell us, to orient us to where we are in God's purposes and plans of the world so that we can keep putting one foot in front of the other, walking by faith and trusting in God. Whether it's to begin that walk or whether it's to end that walk, we need God's horizon. And this seventh vision gives us the concluding element of the horizon that God provides His people It tells us, this vision does, as we explore it, we're going to see it, that in the last days God is going to glorify Himself among all the nations of the earth. And this should be, and this is, our ultimate hope. It's not some abstract uh, principle, it's not some future uh, unknowable event, but it is the fact that God will glorify Himself among the nations is our present hope. So I want us to understand this vision, to see the basis of that hope and why we need to trust in that hope. First of all, uh, and this, is, this comes in simple three moves, by the way, the three simple moves, if you will. We're going to see in this vision, God goes out, God casts down, and God sits down. That's how we'll look at it this morning. God goes out, God casts down, and God sits down. First of all, God goes out. Uh, the beginning of this vision is going to tell us that God's going to ride out from His heavenly throne room in battle to battle the enemies of His people and to battle those who oppose Him. Uh, We've been uh, looking at these visions uh, to see uh, a progression here. Uh, Back in the beginning, uh, there were horses that rode out who saw that the land was at rest, the world was at rest. 
And the angel who saw that realized this was not good news. Because the people who had abused God's people, held them into captivity, plundered the temple of God in Jerusalem, and had done all these things uh, against God and His people, they were fat, happy, and stupid. They were, they were in prosperity. They were at rest. And so the angel in vision one said, How long? How long, O oh Lord? We talked about that where sometimes we wonder, God, will you not set things right? Uh, the fact that nothing's happening is not always good news if you need help. And so that first vision corresponds here to this seventh vision. Whereas there was a reconnaissance patrol in those horse, horses that went out in vision one, here it's not just horses, is it? Rather, it's chariots. And when you see chariots, you know there's something new happening. This is not reconnaissance, this is warfare. Chariots were battle machines, and they are riding out from God's presence. Uh, You see um, in uh, verse 5 that we're told they would go out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth, but how did they present themselves before the Lord of all the earth? Well, we're told at the beginning of the vision that these chariots come out from between two bronze mountains. Now, what are these two bronze mountains? Well, in the ancient world, the gods were believed to live upon mountains. God had his Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Uh, Baal had his Mount Zaphon up in the north. Uh, If you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, they built an artificial man-made mountain and said, we'll reach up to the heavens. And they named it Babel, the gate of God. And so in the ancient world, God was believed to live upon mountaintops. But here we have two bronze mountains. And these chariots that are going to present themselves before the Lord before they ride out, they come out between these bronze mountains. What are they? Well, the the larger promise of the book of Zechariah was that God was going to come back to Mount Zion. God was going to reestablish His temple. And so when we see bronze mountains, we begin to think of things about the Temple of Solomon, and we realize that if we know the Temple of Solomon, there were two bronze pillars that stood at the vestibule of Solomon's temple. Uh, these bronze temples, or pillars rather, uh, you can read about it in 1 Kings 7, 27 feet tall, 18 feet in circumference. And on top of them, they had capitals that were seven feet tall themselves, four inches thick all around, hollow inside. They even had names, sort of like, I guess, a baseball player might name his baseball bats. One was called Jakin, the other Boaz. And these were the the pillars that surrounded the entrance into the holy place where God dwelled. You see, they marked the place where someone would go in to meet with God, but also the place from which God would come out to act on behalf of His people. And very likely, these bronze pillars in Solomon's temple were meant to remind Israel of the, of the, of the, two, of the two manifestations of the glory cloud in the wilderness, the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, to remind Israel that in that temple was the God who had led them across the wilderness led them safely into the promised land, and now who reigned over and protected them and received their worship. So when we see bronze mountains, 
it tells us there's a temple of a size which is unimaginable. If you read uh, the end of uh, Ezekiel's vision, now some people try to calculate and figure out how there's going to be a temple that will actually be bigger than the earth. But when you read of temples of that size, and when you read of mountains that represent bronze pillars around God's temple, you realize this is an outsized temple. This is the throne of God in the heavenly places that now is becoming manifest on earth. That God is coming back to His holy mountain, not just in a building of stone, but He's bringing His holy heavenly temple with Him. And these chariots are going to ride out. And uh, these chariots are part of what we know as the host of heaven. (coughs) Now, if you know anything about the host of heaven, they do not wear aprons. They do not carry drinks and appetizers on trays. The host of heaven is the army of God. One of the names of God in the Old Testament is Lord Sabaoth. You know that term from, uh, uh, from Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, uh, Lord Sabaoth is his name. That means the Lord of hosts. God is the God who leads the heavenly armies, the angels who are his warriors. And you, you see in the Old Testament times where God's people didn't lift a finger, but the enemy fell at the, gate, at the, at the walls of Jericho, for instance. And that's what's happening here. There is a move in these visions of Zechariah where God's people were brought back. They were reestablished in God's holy city. They were reconciled to him in the, in the, in the cleansing of Joshua the high priest. God's glory has returned, but now God's glory is riding out. And the world will rest no more in its wickedness, in its opposition to him, in its discontentedness. You have here the opening of our eyes to what God is doing in the world. There's a wonderful story in 2 Kings chapter 6 where um, Elisha the prophet and his servant are near Dothan, not the one in Alabama, but the one in uh, Israel. And the Syrian army has come down like a horde, ready to annihilate. In fact, they're looking for Elisha himself. And Elisha's servant turns to Elisha and says, My Lord, you know, we're doomed. And Elisha prays. He prays that the eyes of his servant might be opened. And when the servant's eyes are opened, he sees the hills full of of chariots of fire. And Elisha says to his servant, those who are with us are more more than those who are against us. And you see, we need this heavenly vision. We need to understand that God is not content with the way the world is. God is not powerless to do anything about it. That God is waiting Uh, We were told in the previous vision that woman wickedness in her lead-lidded basket was carried off by the unclean storks to Shinar where she would be enthroned, that is, to the land of Babylon. Evil has been exiled from God's people, and now God is going to send His holy army to do something about evil. (coughs) 
Throughout the Old Testament, you find images of God riding out on His chariot to war. Psalm 68, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be vanquished. This comes from Numbers chapter 10. Even as as, uh, Israel was crossing through the wilderness, they carried the Ark of the Covenant in front of them as they marched, vulnerable to attack from all around. But that ark was not just the place of God's resting in the tabernacle, it was also God's battle chariot. That's what the ark represented. And the people would cry, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be vanquished. In Numbers chapter 10. It was their hope that God would be their defender, their divine warrior. And He proved Himself faithful to that all throughout the Old Testament. But... As I said, um, Old Testament Israel lived between uh, promise and reality in the shadowlands. We we don't live in the shadowlands between promise and reality. We now live in the sunrise between what God has already accomplished and what He is yet to accomplish, or as some call it, the already and the not yet. We know this. We know God is for us. Because he took to himself a human nature. There was the glory of God manifested in the flesh, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14. We see that Jesus exercised authority over demons. He exercised authority over all kinds of diseases. He exercised authority over the creation. We see the God of all creation himself riding forth in the incarnate Son of God, to do battle, Uh, that God manifested Himself in the Son so that the New Testament says that who Jesus Himself said, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. And Paul said He is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of His nature. The glory of God has descended in the incarnate Son and and went out in the life and ministry of Jesus so, for us, in the already and not yet, we, not, we don't just wait for every eye to behold Him. But we live as those who have seen His glory and have witnessed it through the testimony of God's Word. But God not only, not only goes out, God in this vision will bring down. Because this vision is going to tell us that the Lord will tear down blasphemous kingdoms and be honored throughout the earth. We read that simply in the last verse. Uh, Those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest. Now, you might be wondering what happens uh, To the fourth chariot, the red chariot is not mentioned after it's first described. We have the the chariot with the black horses that goes north, and the dappled ones go south. Um, We're told the white ones go after them, that is, the black horses. Um, Now, that could mean temporally, it could mean uh, directionally. Uh, It's possible that the Hebrew there is to read the white ones went east. Um, Unlike probably when we come to the book of Revelation and we see the horsemen in the book of Revelation, there's probably not a great 
detail of symbolism in these horses beyond the mere fact that they are God's war chariots. But the thing we notice specifically is that they go to the south and the north. <coughs> to, the, to the west of Israel was the sea. There were no threats there. To the east, the desert. No threat there. To the south was Egypt. But Egypt in the day of Zechariah was, had seen better days. It was no threat. Uh, the threat that God's people had faced always had come from the north in this generation. It had come in the Assyrians who had taken the northern tribes into captivity. Then it came in the Babylonians who took Judah into captivity and where they were for 70 years, and which you read about, say, in the book of Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel. And God had, through the Persians, had freed His people to return to the promised land. But remember, the, the basket in the previous vision had been carried off to Shinar, the land of Babylon. And Babylon, since Genesis 11, becomes a symbol for this great uh, uh, human self-glorifying effort to oppose God. And one day, in the, when coming to the New Testament, the name Babylon will even be used to point the finger at Rome, whose emperors claim to be gods themselves. And so when the horse goes to the north country, the chariot, the black horses goes to the north country, and we're told in verse 8 that those who go to the north country have set my spirit at rest. What we're learning is that those war chariots are going out to overthrow every power that opposes God. That every man-made mountain, every mountain upon which a human being imagined God in their own image and installed an idol, will be overthrown. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us even the king of Babylon who had once said that he would take his place on the mount of the assembly, he would be cast down. By the way, mount of assembly in Isaiah 14 is in the Hebrew har moed, which uh, Revelation 16 transliterates as har magedon or armageddon. The Armageddon is this place where the self-appointed gods of this world try to take their place so that the nations might worship them. Satan even tried to arrange such a deal with Jesus himself. He took him up on a high mountain and said, if you bow down to me, I will give you the nations of the earth. But thankfully, what Zechariah's hearers looked forward to and what we now can look back on is that the Son of God did not bow the knee to the ruler of this world because he knew the promise of Psalm 2 that he had been promised the nations as his inheritance by God himself so that in his earthly life and ministry Jesus brought down. When uh, Mary Here's the news of the child which she will bear. Uh, She celebrates in that great prayer in the Magnificat because she knows He will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt the humble. He will fill the hungry with good things. He will scatter the proud in the thoughts and intentions 
of their hearts. You see, Jesus didn't come only to die for sin, but he came to overthrow every power and principality and every pretense and even every king that we bear about in our hearts. As Jesus prepared to go to the cross in John chapter 12, he spoke of it as his moment of glorification that the Son of Man would be glorified when He was raised up on the cross. But in John chapter 12, He says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast down. That God in Christ has destroyed not only death from within, but He has rendered powerless every power. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that when God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, he put to shame every power and principality, every dominion. When you look at the victory of God in Jesus Christ, you see the overthrow of every idol, of every God pretending to be a God, every human impulse that we have to set ourselves in God's place. This is good news in a couple of ways, I would say. Uh, First of all, it's good news that we have hope in divine retribution. God's going to set things right. You look at the world and you say, How long, O Lord? And the promise of this vision, as well as many other places in Scripture, is God's going to do something about it. And what He's going to do about it will be more just and final and full and complete than any human endeavor. So we we can have hope in divine retribution, that God's just not sitting back, hoping everybody will get along, and hoping they won't tear it up too bad before they figure it out. But there's not only hope in divine retribution, there's gratitude that we can have. Paul has a pretty despicable list of kinds of people in 1 Corinthians 6. And then he says, such were some of you. Uh, It's easy to forget that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were God's enemies, that God made peace with us through the blood of the cross. And so when we see God going out to bring down That's our cue to get low. (laughs) That's our cue to humble ourselves and say, there but for the grace of God go I. The most despicable, the most notorious, the most most infamous criminal or terrorist or dictator that you can imagine on the face of the earth is, is something we are capable of, apart from the grace of God which has been shown upon us in His Son. Now I know for some people, and probably perhaps some of you here, uh, there might be an uncomfortableness about divine retribution. Uh, You look around and you see human justice is very imperfect. It's imperfectly administered, it's corruptly administered. Human justice is incompletely administered and selectively administered. And there are even times where people mistakenly equate their version of justice with divine justice. And that's a great stumbling block to many people, I know. Those of us who are perfectly comfortable with the idea of divine retribution, perhaps we're 
too comfortable with identifying human efforts with divine retribution. Bob Dylan wrote that song, With God on Our Side. Anybody remember that from the 60s? One of the last verses, it says, The confusion I'm feeling ain't no tongue can tell. The words fill my head and fall to the floor. If God's on our side, He'll stop the war. And as each verse goes through a great human conflict, and, and it puts the, puts the words on the lips of the people who fought them, God's on our side. And, and we know if we think for a moment, you know, the most important thing is not God being on our side, but what? Us being on His side. Well, whose side is he on? Well, he's on the side of righteousness. He's on the side of the humble. He's on the side of the weak. Uh, If you look at the people with whom Jesus had dealings in his earthly life and ministry, uh, most of them aren't on our team. And it's a great stumbling block to many people outside the faith to see Christians identifying their causes with God's causes when they don't seem to line up with the absolute, perfect, holy, and unexceptional, that meaning uh, that um, when God's divine retribution is administered, the Bible tells us every mouth will be shut. There will be no objections for the defense or the prosecution. And so our work is to live as people of hope because knowing divine retribution, Paul tells us in Romans 12, is so we don't have to concern ourselves with being the instruments of divine retribution. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. How many times have you heard that quoted by people who are ready to administer it? But you see what the proverb there is saying. This Paul there is quoting Proverbs Chapter, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 22. Because vengeance is God's. Paul goes on to say, we can love those who persecute us. We can show compassion and love toward our enemies. See, because God takes up arms, we can put down arms when it comes to loving people the way God has sent us to love them in Jesus Christ, His Son. This is not to say... Uh, civil government doesn't have its obligation to take up arms to defend its citizenry. But as we uh, navigate our dual citizenship on this earth, we must be sure to be um, most easily known as followers of Christ and secondarily followers of Caesar. God will go out. God will bring down this vision. Finally, it tells us God will sit down. The Lord will return to His holy mountain in an eternal Sabbath rest. Again, verse 8. Those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest. And the word for rest there is the same root that Noah's name is based on. Noah was going to give rest to, uh, to, 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 to people on earth. God would purge the earth of wickedness and begin humanity once again through Noah, the one who would bring rest. But here, God's Spirit 
will be at rest. In the beginning, God made the world in the space of six days by the word of his power, and on the seventh day, he rested. But it's not because God was tired. God doesn't get tired. God is the only one who can actually do 24-7. And he does. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. But when God celebrated a Sabbath rest in creation, it was not simply for rest, it was for celebration. God had triumphed by bringing order to the chaos and filling the emptiness with good things. And when he sat down, it was to enthrone himself as the Lord of creation. Now, since our first parents rebelled against God and brought chaos into the world, God has promised to bring rest through his covenant of grace. And this is what the Sabbath command represents in the Old Testament. God's people were to rest one day in seven in anticipation of the final rest that God would one day bring his creation, where every thorn and thistle had been obliterated, where every tear would have been wiped away, and the pain of childbearing and the futility of labor would have been removed. And so God's people celebrated the Sabbath in hope. It was a sign of faith that God would enthrone himself one day in his creation. And the Bible tells us that God will do that in Christ. When every eye sees him, and when all of his enemies are made his footstool, and he hands over the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of his Father, the saints will have rest beneath the altar of God. But those who have faith in Christ, the writer of Hebrews tells us, have already entered into the rest which Christ has run. We live by faith in Christ in the new creation that has begun in the middle of the old that is falling away. When you gather here today to worship God, to give God one day in seven, you are saying God is already king, just like it says on the sign out front. King in Christ. That when Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, that there is nothing more that he needs to accomplish in the heavenly places, but now he reigns as king. And we can trust him to provide for us in a world that doesn't um, provide for us automatically, that he will defend us as our king in a world that is sometimes and often hostile. And so we already have entered in to that rest, which is described here in verse 8 of the vision, that God manifesting his kingdom on earth. Notice, but notice, it's not just in Jerusalem where God's spirit would be at rest. It's in the north country too. If Zechariah uh, had to send Minda his uh, sermon information every week, sermon text and title, more times than not, Zechariah, if he were being honest about where he was getting his material, it would be from Isaiah. Zechariah is in many ways simply preaching the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah gave us a vision of the future. It said, when God returned to Mount Zion and Jerusalem, and when he brought back his people from captivity, there would be Egyptians and Cushites 
and Babylonians and Ninevites and all these people running alongside them saying, can I go with you? And kings of the earth would bring tribute to the mountain of the Lord as they did the baby Jesus in the manger. You see, God will one day visibly manifest his glory so that it covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, but he is already in the work of the Son and the sending of the Spirit casting down powers and harvesting people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation so that this vision is being fulfilled even while it remains yet to fully and finally be fulfilled. And we have been part of that great harvest of foreigners who have joined themselves to Israel's God. And so we have this comfort and hope as well. But we still wait for the day when all things will be put right. And so the writer of Hebrews also tells us there is a Sabbath rest that yet remains. We celebrate one day in seven because not every day is yet the Lord's day. And when we gather together in worship, we gather together to remind ourselves that one day the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Because when we gather together in the name of Jesus, the Spirit of God descends upon us, keeping God's promises to be present in our worship. And so we get a little new heavens and earth, one day in seven, as we gather together as God's people. And that is a big part of our hope, our Christian hope, to gather together. It's not the mere promise alone that God will be at rest in the North Country. He will be Lord of all creation. Every place that can be seen will be seen to be a place of God's habitation. But it's not mere promise alone. It is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ on earth that teaches and trains us to live out our hope. And so we live in this hope of worshiping the King. And if you know that hymn, you know there is a verse that says, The chariots of wrath His deep thunder clouds form, and dark is His wrath in the in this storm. Uh, we worship God as King because He has gone out, because He has cast down, and because He has sat down, as we would say where I come from. May God give us the ability to put our hope and confidence in the reality, in the, not the artificial horizon, but the real horizon, the God's horizon, as it's been revealed to us in His Word. Will you pray with me? Help us to worship You, our King, all glorious above. Help us to worship you, our King, all glorious above, who, although, he, although you existed in the form of God, humbled yourself to become a servant, to die to take away our sins, to rise for our life, to be exalted to your royal place of authority. Help us to live now as if you are King extending your Sabbath rest to all who would come to you in faith, to live as if because 
it is true that you are. And we give you all praise, honor, and glory, and thanks. Amen.